Keep rolling, rolling, rolling. Though the streams are swollen, keep them doggies rolling. Rawhide. You hear that? That's the sound of a global stampede into stocks as investors reach for risk. November is off to its best start for stocks since 1987. Let's just hope it doesn't end the way it did that year. Yet our biggest problem keeps getting bigger as coronavirus cases top daily records here in the U.S. What will be the after effects of this pandemic on the global economy and on investor psyches? We'll get into that and much more with Mohammed Alarian. And more good vaccine news is lighting up stocks everywhere. Move them on, head them up, head them up, move them on, cut them out, ride them in. You are on the Investopedia Express, and I'm Caleb Silver. Here's what's happening to kick off the week. Global equity markets are ripping higher, seeking a third straight week of gains for major indexes. This as daily coronavirus cases reach record highs in the United States. Investors are trying to balance the risks of another economic slowdown against more promising news from vaccine makers. Moderna is out with news Monday morning that its vaccine is 94.5% effective. This is after Pfizer and BioNTech were out with similar news last week. Risk is winning so far this month as the S&P 500 is having its best November since 1987 and the Dow Industrials are blasting through record highs. Asian and South Pacific countries signed the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership this weekend, led by China, Japan, South Korea, and 12 other Asia-Pacific states. The United States wasn't in the room when it happened. Equity markets throughout Asia, Southeast Asia, and the South Pacific are also at or near record highs as global investors are betting on a swift recovery. Here in the U.S., six out of the 11 S&P 500 sectors are at or near record levels. Those include industrials, basic materials, consumer discretionary stocks, communication services, consumer staples, and healthcare. And as our friend J.C. Peretz from All Star Charts likes to say, stocks and sectors at record highs are not evidence of a downtrend. Speaking of momentum, jump on or get out of the way of transport stocks. The Dow transports are also at an all-time high to start the week. As Charlie Dow, the godfather of our modern-day stock indexes, taught us at the beginning of the 20th century, when the Dow transports and the Dow industrials both make record highs, look out above. If one goes the other way, that's a warning sign. Here are a few things to watch in the week ahead. Earnings season is wrapping up and the big box retailers are putting a bow on it for us. We'll get results from Walmart, Target, and Home Depot this week, and they are likely to look very good. With more stay-at-home restrictions likely coming our way, these retailers are making it work both on and offline. As long as consumer spending remains robust, this trend could continue. We'll get an idea of how strong that spending is when we get a report on retail sales on Tuesday. We'll also get more news on the U.S. housing market with reports on building permits, housing starts, and existing home sales later in the week. The red-hot U.S. housing market has showed some signs of cooling down, as winter is coming. And all eyes are on the UK and Brexit this week. This upcoming Thursday, the European Council will hold a conference call to discuss plans to deal with the ongoing pandemic. It's also become the unofficial deadline to draft the EU-UK trade agreement. This is ahead of the European Parliamentary Review to ratify the Brexit Treaty before the official December 31st deadline. Mohamed Al-Arian has been an important voice through many market cycles, including the great financial crisis, the trade wars, and throughout this pandemic. 
Very few people can synthesize what is happening in the macro economy and make it relevant for people like us and for individual investors. That's why you see him on the business networks and in the pages of publishers like Bloomberg and the Financial Times. He's the president of Queens College, Cambridge, and an advisor at Allianz and Gramercy. And he's our very special guest this week, Mohamed Alarian. Welcome to The Express. Thank you for having me. What concerns you most as a social scientist right now? You've seen many cycles, but this is very unique. What makes you very concerned at this point in time? So what makes me most concerned are the longer-term effects. And the longer-term effects, not just on the economy and finance, but on people, what we call scarring, the fact that people will come out of this different. And I'm not just talking about economic insecurity, which I think is considerable, but also mental anguish. I think we've got to be very conscious that this is putting people under considerable strain. It's keeping them out of their comfort zone for a long time. And it is a major, major disruption to how they behave and therefore how they think about the future. Right. We've seen it, obviously, in children who can't be at school or who are going to school part-time, but you also see it in the workforce, especially those folks that can't work from home. We've also seen it in our shopping habits. Long-term, I don't think we've seen anything like this in several decades. How does it play out in terms of the way we spend, in terms of the way we interact? So the greatest concern is that this is a very unequal shock. And you're not just going to pick it up in the inequality of income and wealth, but we're going to pick it up in the inequality of opportunity. And the minute you bring opportunity into play, it's about multiple generations. So the biggest concern is opportunity. And that's one thing we've got to be very careful of. That is a supply-side shock, the economists will tell you, that you are taking away the ability of people to be productive. And it adds to other negative productivity effects. Two in particular, the strong are getting stronger, the weak are getting weaker. That's true for companies as well. And therefore, we're seeing increased concentration, which is not good for competitiveness. And then we're seeing deglobalization. We're seeing a reordering of supply chains. And that in the short term is a negative productivity shock. So the first thing to be careful about is on the supply side. And then there's the demand side. You know me well. I like simple examples. The Orange County Food Bank saw very new people come asking for assistance. One of them was a long-term 15 years baggage handler at the local airport. They had a very secure job, and they were very good at it. Because they had a secure job, they lived from paycheck to paycheck. They never saved. Suddenly, that secure job became joblessness. That person will go back to work. But I'm willing to bet that that person will save. So what you're gonna, we're going to see is a demand shock as well as a supply shock. Right, because they don't want to be left empty-handed the next time this happens. Correct. You know what? When you suffer a tail event, a low probability, huge impact event, you change behavior. The most simple example, how many people buy flood insurance after the flood, even though the price of flood insurance has gone up, right? That's the sort of behavior you get when you react to what's called a tail event. So we talked about a little bit about the K-shaped recovery, the strong getting stronger. Those that have income, those that have capital, those that have equity, own homes are in very good shape here. Some people are actually going to wind up better uh, on the other side of this, but there's a very large subset of people in low-income earners in the services economy who are not. Is, is it too late to stop the K-shaped recovery or to fix it 
at this stage in the game. We potentially have a new administration coming in Washington. We've known that that's something that they wanted to address. Is it too late? So it's not too late to address it, and we need to fix it. I don't think people quite realize that the consequences go beyond those suffering. You know, the phrase, you can't be a good house in a, in a challenged neighborhood, is really applicable. And to understand why is think of distributions. And I know you, people are going to think, oh, my God, why is he taking us to distributions? But we normally live under what I call bell-shaped distribution, normal distribution. It looks like a bell. And these are very comforting because it's anchored by the middle, high probability outcomes, and the tails exist but are thin. Now, what happens to a distribution when you hollow out the middle? When you hollow out the middle and you increase the tails, it becomes unstable. It is no longer anchored. We, over the last few years, have rendered one distribution after another unstable. The middle class got eroded. Now, why do people care about the middle class? Because it stabilizes social interaction. We have seen the rich get richer, the poor suffer more. That is the income distribution getting hollowed out in the middle. Middle-income people have been hit very hard. And we are seeing the same thing happen in companies where the small boutique players continue, the big ones get bigger, and the middle gets squeezed out. So every distribution we're looking at gets hollowed out. So the new administration has to realize this is a multi-year phenomenon that needs a multi-year response. And what's at stake is much more than economic, social well-being. It is about stability. So let's put your advisor hat on a second. Assuming the Biden administration ultimately prevails and they take office January 20th of next year, what should be the first three things it should do to get the recovery, particularly the labor market and particularly these low-income people left out of the recovery, back into gear? First, manage the period of living with COVID better. We are going to continue living with COVID. I am as excited as everybody else is about the vaccine news, but it will take time. It takes time to distribute it. It takes time for full adoption. We're not going to get to herd immunity for another 9 to 12 months. So we need to live better during COVID. The government has a critical role to play here. It's about enhancing testing and tracing. It's about encouraging certain behaviors. So there's a whole element of living with COVID. That's number one. Number two, enable people. Recognize that people are being hit hard, and we're going to need a renewed focus on a few things. Retraining and retooling. It can be done through private-public partnerships. Infrastructure modernization. That's absolutely key. That includes getting Wi-Fi to children in public schools. When COVID hit and people went online, the LA school district, the second largest in the country, lost touch of 30% of their students, 30%. Think of what that means in terms of their future. Why did they lose touch? Yes, some didn't want to stay in touch, but that's not the real reason. Some didn't have Wi-Fi, some didn't have computers, some didn't have the place to work. So the second element is going to be enabling, empowering people to make sure that marginalization and alienation stops. And then the third element is household insecurity. We've got to recognize that our safety nets are not strong enough for the sort of world we live in. Right. Let's switch gears and put your investor hat on for a second. Are you surprised 
by the way capital markets have recovered and how they are behaving lately? No, because I remember the question that would be asked repeatedly when considering a new investment. When I was at PIMCO and we would look at a new investment, we would, of course, assess it on the basis of the fundamentals and then ask the question, who is going to buy after us? Who is the next buyer? And when you ask the question, who is the next buyer? If the next buyer happens to be a central bank with a printing press in the basement and ample willingness to use it, it is incredibly comforting. So it comes as no surprise to me at all that asset prices have been decoupled from the real economy because central banks are so powerful when it comes to the asset channel, Not not the economy channel, the asset channel. Which is why the Federal Reserve, Jerome Powell, has been goading Congress to pass another stimulus bill. They have done what they can in terms of backing the capital markets, putting the safety net under the bond market, even under the equity market, but they can't distribute money to individuals directly and the government can, and they haven't. Where should the next stimulus package be aimed? Should it be any different from the last one we saw? Yes. And it's important that it happens because central banks desperately need to hand off. They cannot continue being the only game in town. They need to hand off that responsibility. And if they don't hand it off, then the the famous equation that Ben Bernanke set out in 2010 when he used unconventional policy, not to normalize financial markets, but to target economic outcome. He said, quote, it's about benefit, costs, and risks. And now we are in the zone where the costs and risks are starting to exceed the benefits. So that handoff has to be partly to fiscal policy, partly to structural reforms. It has to be both. As to how different the fiscal package needs to be, it needs to be more forward-looking, more pro-work, and more aimed at not just relief, but also enabling the future. And I think that's really important. And we have to start early because these things are take time to gain traction. Let's bring it a little bit back to individual investors. We have a lot who listen to this program. We're not looking for tactical advice, but many people, and I get this question all the time, you probably do too. What would you tell an individual investor, a 401k contributor or a pre-retiree trying to make it to that magic number, trying to make it to that, maybe it's 10 years out, maybe it's five years out, maybe they have a number in their head. But they're looking at this uncertainty. At the same time, the capital markets have roared back. And if they sat on the sidelines or got out when things got scary, now they're even in a worse place. What would you tell the individual investor just trying to make some sense out of this and and allocate responsibly? I would say, you know what? Our greatest strength can become our greatest weakness. So what you've got to make sure is that doesn't happen. Our greatest strength has been basically that correlations broke down. You know, 2019 and even most of this year, if you ignore what happened in March, you've made money on virtually everything you own. Ironically, you've made money both on risk assets and also on risk-free assets. Compared to a year and a half ago, you've made money on both. That is wonderful, but that's not normal. Okay, And we have to realize that. And when you realize that's not normal, you start thinking your mind, your mindset. Now, the bigger debate is out there is, is the 60-40 portfolio still valid or not? Basically, what that is telling you is that it's not easy to mitigate risk. That's, that's the biggest challenge for investors. When someone tells you 
you can't mitigate risk, they basically tell you there's a chance you're going to make a mistake. Now, most mistakes in investment are recoverable over time. That's what you've taught us. Um, they are recoverable, but some are not. And what are, not, what are non-recoverable mistakes? Capital impairments, bankruptcies, fundamental restructurings. So what I tell people is don't think you have to go in cash completely. Don't think you have to abandon everything you've learned. But take a bottom-up look at your portfolio and ask the following questions. Do you own name that are, names that are predominantly resilient, meaning they have strong balance sheet, agile, means that they can respond to different global environments and have a certain amount of cognitive diversity, that you've seen them think outside the box. If you have at least two of these things, especially resilience and agility, then you can sleep well at night. Does it mean that you'll have no volatility? No, you'll have it. But it means that whatever short-term mistakes your portfolio ends up making, they will be recoverable over time. Mohammed Al-Aaron, your wisdom is so important to, to so many people who, who listen to you, who read what you write, and, and just having conversations with you. You're able to break it down in such understandable terms, and we so appreciate you joining The Express. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. Investopedia is proud to partner with Wall Street Bound, a nonprofit organization based here in New York that teaches inner city college students and grads the skills they need to help them enter the financial services industry. We're joined today by our friend Troy Prince to tell us more about Wall Street Bound and a very special charity poker tournament you have planned for next Saturday, the 21st. Troy, welcome to The Express. Thanks for having me, Caleb. For the folks that don't know what Wall Street Bound is, tell us a little bit more about it. What's your objective? What are you trying to do? And how does it work? We largely execute our mission through uh, three primary programs. One, the Introduction to Wall Street Bootcamp, which is an introductory program, 20 to 25 hours of soft skills, technical skills, and mostly introductory material that's asset classes, industry, career paths, some technical training, and certainly professional presentations, a day in the life of, if you will, to expose students that are not necessarily all finance majors to the industry. Secondly, we have a more intensive Wall Street Direct, which is primarily focused on training rising sophomores, rising juniors for the competitive Wall Street uh, summer internships. Last but not least, we've recently launched the Diverse Trader Training Program, where we are recruiting and training urban youth, college students, recent graduates to become proprietary traders managing live capital. This program is very unique because it goes beyond financial literacy, financial education, but actually provides students, program participants with access to capital, live capital. Program students start off with $25,000 live accounts over the course of the one-year program are each expected to graduate up to managing a quarter of a million dollars each keeping 70, 80% of profits, quite unique going beyond the training, but actually the last mile for particularly for my community, access to capital. Teaching them the skills and then the access to capital. So important. We love what you're doing. If folks want to apply or have people in their networks, they want to refer to the program. How do they find you? Feel free to always visit our website, wallstreetbound.org. We have a contact page there. Otherwise, people connect with me on LinkedIn all the time. Email us at info at wallstreetbound.org and someone will re reply shortly. Great. So you got a big charity 
poker tournament coming up. You got all, the entire financial Twitter community involved. You got so many cool people who are playing and donating. Tell us about it. Tell us when it is and tell us how to pay attention to it if we want to follow it. Thank you so much for that, Caleb. Yeah, so Chips for Charity, it's our inaugural charity poker tournament sponsored by our another partner firm, StockTwits.com. Everyone knows StockTwits, the largest online community of traders. We are big fans and friends of StockTwits. Fantastic. We know that. And thank you again. I think it'll be a lot of fun. We have big name influencers, as you mentioned, participating. It's going to be a Texas Hold'em style poker tournament on Saturday, November 21st. That begins at 2 p.m. We expect the tournament to go three to four hours. And I think there'll be lots of fun. There are bounties out there. 100% of proceeds will go towards wallstreetbound.org. And of course, bragging rights as the best poker player on the street. Chipsforcharity.stocktwits.com. Once again, that's chipsforcharity, one word, .stocktwits.com. Great. Everybody should check that out. And that should be so much fun. We're looking forward to watching that and, and doing our part to put some bounties out there and some folks. And again, it's wallstreetbound.org. Love what you're doing, Troy. Keep up the great work. And folks, if you know anybody that could be interested in this program or interested in the tournament, or if you know folks you want to put into the program yourself, check it out. We highly recommend it. Troy, thanks so much for joining the Express. Thanks for having us and appreciate all the work you do uh, in supporting us in Investopedia. Thank you, Caleb. It's terminology time Time for us to go deep on the investing term of the week that you need to know to stay smart with your portfolio. This week's term comes to us courtesy of Thomas Toole in Miami. Thomas messaged us on Instagram with his suggestion, and he gets a pair of buttersoft and handsome Investopedia socks for his recommendation. You can too if you pick the term of the week that we use on the show next week. Thomas wants to know about tail risk. You heard the great Mohammed Alarian bring it up earlier in the show, and my favorite website defines tail risk as a form of portfolio risk that arises when the possibility that an investment will move more than three standard deviations from the mean is greater than what is shown by a normal distribution. Tail risks include events that have a small probability of occurring and occur at both ends of a normal distribution curve. Connecting the dots here, we just experienced a very serious tail risk with a global pandemic that has killed more than 1.3 million people and leveled the global economy. Tail risks come with little to no warning, even though a lot of people saw this one coming over a year ago. Well, that's the end of the line for this week's trip on the Investopedia Express. We'll let the legendary investor Peter Lynch take us out with his words of wisdom on how simple stock investing can be. There's always something to worry about, and the key organ in your body in the stock market is your stomach. It's not the brain. If you can add 8 and 8 and get reasonably close to 16, that's the only level of math you need to know. Oh, Peter, if it were only that easy. You take it easy and be safe this week, and you keep rolling, rolling, rolling. I'm Caleb Silver, and we'll talk to you again next week. Music